Tonight is part two of our journey through the book of Philemon. This is my second sermon to preach from this book. We can't escape the issue of slavery. It's unfair to ignore it. I gave a lengthy introduction last week, but I would like to quickly recap in a much more brief statement for the sake of continuity. Because I know that this is, this is common. As I shared last week, a couple of years ago, five or six years ago when I was in seminary, I had gone up to New Jersey and I had talked to my friends and, uh, excuse me, I was with my friend while we were talking to some of his unsaved friends and, and the, the argument is this, is how can the Bible be good and true when it is silent on the matter of slavery? And we need to be ready to give a response to that. And as I said last week, one of the important things to answer is, how do we understand slavery today? And is that how the people of the Bible would have understood slavery? That's the question that last week we, we sought to answer, we sought to, to work through. Do we understand slavery in the same terms? And I don't think we do. See, for us in 2017, the obvious good, as I said last week, is liberation, is freedom for slaves. But that would not have been the obvious good in the first century for Paul. It wouldn't have been. One out of every three people within the Roman Empire were slaves at the time that he writes this letter. It was so integrated into the socioeconomic institution of the day that it just was how things were. That's just how things are. That's not to try to minimize it or somehow say that it wasn't bad. It, it was bad, but it was different. Slaves in the ancient world could be doctors, lawyers, musicians, teachers. It was not uncommon for the owner of the slave to train their slave in their own craft. Were there abuses? Absolutely. I'm not saying anything to diminish slavery, but simply to help us understand when people say, huh, the Bible, look at these people. They didn't, they didn't condemn slavery. They didn't say to free the slaves. I know, but for people in the first century, that wouldn't have been the obvious good. See, it's the obvious good for us in lieu of 2017, in lieu of American history, in lieu of Lincoln, in lieu of the Emancipation Proclamation. It was the obvious good for us. But in the first century, it wouldn't have been. Slavery, yes, was wrong, but it was different, and how people viewed it was different as well. Slavery wasn't racially based in the ancient world. Slaves came from all different ethnic backgrounds. They came from all different social classes. And to say that, well... The Bible can't be good and true because it's silent on this matter, or it maybe it doesn't attack slavery the way we would want it to in view of our 2017 American history lens. I don't know is super fair. As we said last week, this whole thing is, that's the answer. They should have said that. They should have told them to free their slaves. And yet, that obvious good wouldn't have been obvious for the people in the first century. As I said last week, if a Christian slave owner were, let's say, to do that, he very well may be condemning them to a life of, a life of poverty and starvation. Huh. Okay. My point is, is I, I don't think that matter is as cut and dry as oftentimes non-Christians will attack us 
in that respect. Or they'll say, why doesn't Jesus bring a message to end slavery? He could have done that. Why didn't he? Why didn't he include that message of of social justice or ending the, the slave laws? And I think there are layers of answers. I think one, first and foremost, is any such slave uprising would have been crushed by Rome. But it happened before. They don't take slave uprisings very gladly. Um, they like the Romans, they like to make examples of people. And they would have crushed it like that. Furthermore, any such incorporation of this social justice issue incorporated into the gospel would have overshadowed the gospel. I mean, people got Jesus confused when he came. They thought he was going to be this political liberator that he was going to overthrow Rome, that he was going to establish once again Jewish sovereignty. But he didn't come the first time as a conquering king to do that. came as a lamb led to the slaughter. That's not what Christianity is about. Make sure you understand this. Christianity is not about like social justice or changing the, the laws or, or lob, lobbying Washington. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is the God of the universe changing rebel hearts. You want change? That's where it's going to come from. True and lasting change flows through the gospel when rebel hearts are changed. Not when we lobby Washington, D.C. I'm not saying there aren't good causes. But so, I think sometimes, like, if Christians put as much energy and effort into the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, as we often do into current events or politics, I I would really love to see the transformation that occurs. Does Christianity directly attack slavery? No. Does it indirectly attack it? You bet it does. In fact, I would argue that Christianity planted the seeds which ultimately led to the demise of slavery. Because what does the gospel do? It changes rebel hearts. Men like William Wilberforce, who worked tenaciously within the British Parliament to bring about an end to the British slave trade. True and lasting change flows through the gospel when rebel hearts are changed. I pray that that would be the focus of all of us. Philemon is not mainly about slavery. Philemon is about forgiveness, about restoration. Paul writes this letter sometime between 60 and 61 AD. He writes this letter during his first Roman imprisonment. It's house arrest, essentially. It's not like a dungeon. It's, it's house arrest. So think more like ankle monitor type thing going on. He writes this letter to a man that he seems to know quite well, a man named Philemon, who by all accounts, we think that he met Philemon years earlier while in Ephesus doing ministry. It's believed that while in Ephesus, that Philemon may have come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior through Paul's teaching and preaching. But since that time, Philemon, he lives in the ancient city of Colossae, and we don't know a whole lot about him other than the fact that he seems to be pretty well off. He has a home in which the, the church there, the Colossian church, meets in. So he's well off enough to have a home big enough to, to house the church. And the issue of the story surrounds Philemon's runaway slave, Onesimus. Onesimus has fled Philemon as dep- deprived Philemon 
of his services and possibly stolen from him, according to verse 18, fled some thousand miles to Rome. And it was while in Rome that Onesimus gets saved and meets Paul while he happens to be there under house arrest. Paul begins to disciple Onesimus, to teach Onesimus, and then he sends Onesimus back to Colossae with Tychicus and the letter that bears his name, Philemon. So we begin today in verse 4. Verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Stop. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. How should we understand this? Well, I'll tell you how we should not understand this. What he's not saying here in verse 4 is, oh, by the way, Philemon, when I think of you, I'm like, oh yeah, Philemon. Yeah, I should thank God. That's not what he's saying. And yet, how are we to understand this? Is he always thanking God or is he always remembering to pray for Philemon? Is he always thanking God or is he always remembering to pray for Philemon? And my answer is yes. No doubt the stress of always is is put on thanking God. But Paul is also one who is constantly remembering people who stood with him, like Philemon, who he described last week in the greeting as a fellow worker. He's always remembering people like Philemon, the fellow workers, not the, the pew warmers, but the people who are battling day in, day out, week in, week out, with him in ministry. And so, verse 4 gives us an insight into his prayer life. That's what verse 4 does. Some of you are like, I want to have a better prayer life. Well, you picked a good Sunday to be here. We look at this verse, and we think about the implications of it. I thank my God always. You know, that's easy to do when circumstances are going our way. When things in life is playing out the way we want it to, that's really easy to thank God in those moments. But it's a little harder when things aren't going the way we want them to. Where is Paul right now? He's, 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 he's under house arrest, to be, to be fair. I don't know, but I imagine it's probably less than ideal to be under house arrest in Rome. Okay, maybe not the place he was hoping to be. And yet, he's thanking and worshiping God. It is reminiscent of Job. I I brought up a verse last week. This is far less controversial than the verse I brought up last week in Job. This says this, Job chapter 1, verse 21. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What characterizes Paul's prayer life is thanksgiving. Not just when things are going his way, but when things are not going his way. How can he do that? Because he knows that the fact that he is there in Roman custody is because God wants him to be there in Roman custody. God is still on his throne. God is still ruling. God is still sovereign, even over these not-so-great circumstances. So he can thank God 
God, you're in control. I'm in Roman custody right now, but that's okay because i got to think that you've got a, a reason, a plan for me to be here in this less than ideal situation. But that's not all he says. That's not all he says. He's always thanking God. I love verse 4 because, like I said, it gives us insight into his prayer life. And about a year ago, I was struggling with this. And I had, was it some little airport? I don't even remember the name. It was south of Los Angeles about this time a year ago. Um, I just, I was spent 10 days out in the Mojave Desert um, in what they call the box. Uh, it was at Fort Irwin. Um, and so I was just out there for 10 days. And I was sitting in the airport getting ready to fly back here. And I read this article from Desiring God. It wasn't written by John Piper, but it was, <laughs> yeah, it was a great article on prayer. Um, a convicting article. And I've shared the Martin Luther quote with you guys before, how Luther used to say, I try to pray one to two hours a day. And then on days when I'm really busy, right, when I've got the intramural sports game, a date, all this homework, on those days, I try to pray three hours a day. Or Piper, he says, one of my favorite quotes from him on prayer, he says, if prayer ever seems to you like a distraction from productivity, i got a million things to do. I don't have time to stop and pray. If prayer ever seems to you like a distraction from productivity, remember that God can do more in five minutes of prayer than you can in five hours on your own. But what really got it to me was the story of George Mueller. I pray that God will give me faith like that man. <sighs> he, he had the orphanage in London. Now, there's the famous story where um, it's dinner time and they have no food. And he, he asked the help. He says, let's get all these children. Let's sit them down for dinner. We have no food, Mr. Mueller. Oh, that's okay. God, God knows the little, these little orphans need to eat. Um, and so they sat there and he prayed. He said, we're just going to sit and wait. This story tears, just, just gets at my heartstrings. And they, he prays and then they sit there and they wait. We're just going to sit here and wait. God, God knows that these little orphans, they need food tonight. And then there's a, on the door and, uh, it's the baker. He's like, I've got all this leftover bread. I thought, who more could I bring it to than, than Mr. Mueller and his orphanage? And then, and then a few minutes later, the milkman shows up. Um, it's said that George Mueller had a book of prayers, a journal of prayers with over 50,000 answered prayers. I was like, wow. Like, give me that type of faith, God. Give me that type of faith. Wow. Um, I love that story. And I went out and I got a, I got a, a little journal. I got a little book of prayers. Just, not writing paragraphs. I just usually write bullet points down. And and over the last year, I was even looking over today, just all the, the check marks of answered prayers that I had. See, I love verse 4 because verse 4 is going to give us an insight into Paul's prayer life. He's thanking God regardless of the circumstances because he's got a really big God. And two, he remembers Philemon when he prays. And so the question here, I think, that needs some unpacking is, is, well, what does this mean? What does remembering people in prayer involve? What does it involve? 
It involves a consideration for that person, but not just for that person, but a consideration for them and their needs, and then going on their behalf to the creator of the universe and asking him to intercede on their behalf for their benefit. Say, what what does this look like, remembering people in prayer? What, What does that involve? Well, it involves not just considering them, but also their needs, what's going on in their lives, and then going before the creator of the universe on their behalf and asking him to act for their benefit. You you want a, a better prayer life? Here's a great example. People tell me, I, I want to do better at loving people. I want to do better at serving people. I want to do better at just caring for people. I want to do better at praying for people. People ask me, why do you emphasize small groups so much? Well, there are layers of answers. And for the sake of brevity, I won't give you all of them. But small groups seeks to facilitate a knowing. You want to love and care and serve and pray for people? It is difficult to do that effectively if you don't know that person. I want to love them. Okay, what do they need? I don't know. I want to pray for them. How can I pray for them? I don't, I don't know. It's one of the reasons I, 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 I encourage and try to challenge you all the time. And I'll be honest, like, I know many of you are like, whatever, because that's how I used to be for the first 14 months at Lynchburg City Church. And we're only like 37 months old right now. But for the first 14 months, we didn't even do small groups until God started to like convict the crap out of me. He did. And I, I was wrong. But small groups seeks to facilitate that. Can't, it's, it's very hard to love and care and serve and pray for people if, if you don't even know what's going on in their lives. You're like, oh man, they, I want to, I want to weep with them when they're going through something hard, but I don't know if they're going through something hard. I want to, I want to be excited for them and rejoice for them when they're going through something awesome, but I don't really know. It's hard for some of us who, the only time we see you is here on Sundays. And so we drive on to verse 5. He says, Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, because I, I hear, it's interesting, he hasn't seen Philemon, most guesses are, at least for three years, and he says, I hear. It's a very intentional use of the present tense, our English word, hear. Not Philemon, like, I- I've heard, but Philemon, I'm hearing I'm hearing all these really great things about you. Onesimus, no doubt. Epaphras, your pastor, verse 23. Man, they're back briefing me. They're telling me of what a rock star that you're being, that that it is so well with your soul. I'm hearing of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. I'm getting all these positive reports. I'm hearing about your your commitment to Christ, but not just your commitment to to Christ, but also your commitment to the people of God, the church. Philemon's demonstrating this, continually demonstrating this, not just his concern and love and affection and zeal for God, but also for the Colossian church. 
And so the thinking is, is if Philemon's faith is real, which is very apparent that it is, it's going to manifest itself, and it's going to be obvious and evident that he loves people. And if he's showing the same love and affection and zeal for the church there at Colossae, then no doubt it's going to stand to reason that Paul can expect him to show that same love to Onesimus once he returns and forgive him. We do a really good job at loving Jesus, relatively speaking. We do a really good job at loving Jesus. It's American Christianity. It's all about Jesus, and that's not a false statement. But I wonder, how well do we do it loving others, specifically the bride, we're singing about the bride a couple songs ago. How well do we do in loving the people to our left and right? You say, I don't know them. Hmm. We're good at loving Jesus. We're a whole lot less good at loving the church. But Philemon is set apart as this example. Not just your love for, for Jesus, but also for all the saints. No doubt they're in Colossae, who, they're your family, your spiritual family. And so oftentimes I'll hear people say this, they'll, they'll almost grade themselves. They'll say, yeah, if I had to like grade where I'm at loving Jesus, I'm probably like an A plus. Okay, like maybe an A minus. How are you at loving the church? Oh, I'm not too good at that. I'm, uh, I'm more of kind of a, you know, I'm, I'm in on Sundays and I'll see you next week type of, type of Christian. And so I'd probably, you know, maybe like a D minus or D plus or C minus, maybe like a B minus, you know, or B plus. It just, I know I struggle, but whatever. Now that was a rhetorical question, but it was also a trick question. You know, you say, how are you doing at loving Jesus? And how are you doing at loving the church? If your answer is, man, I do really good at loving Jesus, I don't do so good at loving the church, I would argue that you probably don't do as good a job as you think at loving Jesus if you're not loving the church well. I do a good job at loving Jesus, I don't do a good job at loving the church. You you probably don't do as good a job at loving Jesus as you think you do if you're not loving the people of God, his bride that he bought with a hefty toll a hefty price at the cost of his own son. But Philemon, ah, he is an example to all of us. He is a wonderful example to all of us. I'm hearing, Philemon, of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus, and it doesn't stop there. And and for all the saints, reminiscent of what Paul says in Galatians 6.10, you know, we, we introduce four people as members. And on our one-page membership covenant, Galatians 6.10 is on there because it reflects this culture. Galatians 6.10, Paul writes, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially, especially, especially to those who are of the household of faith. If you really want to love Jesus well, then you can't be neglecting his bride. You can't be neglecting the people that are sitting in front of you and behind you and to your left and right. I realize that might be awkward for some of you right now. I'd rather you feel a little awkwardness 
than not hear the truth. And so we drive on to verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now I will pause here for a moment and just let it be known that this verse is regarded as the most difficult verse in all of Philemon. That's pretty much what all the commentators said universally. This verse is regarded as the most challenging verse in all of Philemon. And the difficulties of this verse center upon two of the early words. The sharing of your faith. Sharing in faith. Those two words make understanding and unpacking this verse that much more tedious. And the reason is because sharing and faith has multiple different meanings. In different situations, in different contexts. And so my goal is to lock this down. Because at first glance we read this and it naturally reads like Paul is praying for Philemon as he goes out and shares the gospel and evangelizes that people will come to know Jesus. And yet that view is universally held by about nobody. But that's what we think. So so verse 6 is challenging. And there is an assumption that Paul makes in writing verse 6. And the assumption is now... Or since, since Philemon is a Christian, he is a part of a community, of a body, of faith. So when you become a Christian, you're a part of the global church. When Jesus saves you, you're part of the global church that that spreads across all borders, all regions, all ethnic groups, all languages, And as we saw today, we see people being a part of the local church, which I would argue is an expression of the global church. And so the assumption that Paul has in writing verse 6 is that Philemon is very much a part of this fellowship there in Colossae. And so what are you saying here? And I pray that the sharing or this word can also be translated fellowship, that the sharing of your faith may become effective. That is, Philemon, I'm praying for you that this faith that you have, this faith that you share within the fellowship there at Colossae, that it may be more and more effective. That you may grow deeper and deeper in knowledge, but not just head knowledge, Philemon, but that that head knowledge may transform you. That it may transform you and manifest itself in practical ways. That it may be effective for every good work. Getting really practical here. Every good work. Paul wants Philemon to understand and put into practice. He wants his faith to grow. Not just head knowledge, but that it would manifest itself in practical ways for every good work. You say, every good work, that's kind of ambiguous. I know. That's what the commentator said too. But the thinking, the, the linear line of thinking is this. If Philemon learns to do every good thing, then he will no doubt comply with Paul's request to do a specific good thing in forgiving Onesimus. If he learns how to comply and do every good thing from, from a deeper knowledge of his faith, then when Paul asks Philemon of a specific good thing in forgiving Onesimus, then he will no doubt 
do that as well. That's what he prays for him. Like I'm, I'm praying for you, church, not just that you hear a good sermon about forgiveness, but that you go out and you do it. That, that your faith grows in such a way that this faith that you share with other believers, that it grows in a deeper, fuller, richer way that isn't just a bunch of random facts in your head, but then manifests itself that you're actually doing the things that you're learning about. When I pray, before I read my Bible each morning, one of the things I pray is, God, I don't just want to read words on a page today. I don't want to, it's so often, right, we're reading our Bibles, it's just like blank words on a page. I'm like, God, I want this to be more than just words on a page today. I want these words to transform my life, every aspect of my life. And that is what Paul is praying for Philemon. That's what he's praying for, Philemon, for. To 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 what cause or or, or to what end, and that is for the sake of Christ, or your translation may say, for the glory of Christ. Why? Because in forgiving him, that's going to make Christ look really good. Because everybody else is going to be like, wait, right? The non-Christians are going to be like, you're forgiving your runaway slave? You could easily have him killed. You're going to forgive him? Like, I don't get that, Philemon. That doesn't make sense. Why are you just going to forgive him? What an opportunity for Philemon to say, if God forgave me, then certainly I can forgive Onesimus. And the world is back here, and they're looking in at the life of Philemon. They're saying, that doesn't make any sense. We don't do it this way within the first century culture. You're a slave owner. He's your slave. He left you. He possibly stole from you. And you're just going to forgive him? Like, I don't get that. Like, what do you get, Philemon, that I don't understand? That's why Paul, I believe, closes this, and he says, ultimately, this is about making Christ look really great. Because... As Christians, we're called to be different. And when we're different, the world stands back oftentimes and they scratch their head and they're like, I don't get this because like you could have him killed like, like that. You could have him killed for much far lesser like crimes and you're going to forgive him. I don't understand that. What's up with like Philemon guy? <laughs> well, this is what's up with this Philemon guy. Verse seven. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, Philemon, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you. People struggling, people suffering, people hurting have been refreshed by Philemon. This, this word refresh, it's a military term. That is typically used to express uh, after an army is at a long forced march and they've just been just they're exhausted. Then finally, when that march comes to an end, they're like, "Thank goodness it's over." He has refreshed them in that way. He is a source of blessing to everyone. That's just the kind of guy Philemon was. And Paul knew that he could count on him to forgive Onesimus. And my question is, is 
Are you like him? Clearly, he's a wonderful example for us today, but are you like him? Are you like Philemon? Are you a source of refreshment? Are you helpful and encouraging? Or do you live within the the Lone Ranger, individualistic Christian world that represents most of America? Like, are you a Lone Ranger Christian? Is that is that you? Like, I probably could be a source of of refreshment, like Philemon, but I'm I'm on my own journey. And I struggle with that. I did, I did. Struggle with the idea of church membership and, and committing to a group of people a lot, especially when I was in seminary, and and I thought I was awesome. And I, I love the story that Mark Dever shares, and I, I usually share it once a year because it, it just hits so home for me. He was talking to a friend of his, and he said, "You know, John, have you ever thought about?" joining and becoming a part of the church. And he's like, Mark, why would I do that? Like, I know what I'm here to do, right? I know all the answers. If I join a church, like, those people are only going to slow me down. And he says, yeah, maybe, but maybe, maybe, just maybe, you'll help to speed some of them up. Are you like that? Is that even your thought process? Or are you just like, man, I'm awesome at loving Jesus, but everyone else can fend for themselves. Are you a source of refreshment and comfort? Like Philemon to others? So here's the thing, I'll tell you right now. Real faith, real love will inevitably result in a concern for the saints. It will. There is no place in the body of Christ for an individualistic, lone ranger version of Christianity. There's just not. that doesn't care for others in the ways that clearly Philemon does. If you're not like Philemon, then repent right now. Don't, don't think of arguments why I'm wrong. If, if, you, if you feel like you, this is a great example and, I, and I'm not like that guy, then just repent. Ask God to help, God help me be like this guy who, who is just a rock star that Paul is writing to and he's praising him and he's characterized by all these things that honestly I'm just not right now. I'm concerned about myself, not so much about others. So as the band comes right now, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for us. God, we love you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to be a Philemon. Help us to be a Philemon. Help us to be a Paul in our prayer life. Help us to be a Philemon in our, in our Christian walk where we're not just devoted and loving you, but we also love and care and concern for the people around us. God, help us with, 
I think it's really just selfishness. This this selfish, individualistic, lone ranger version of Christianity that has really pervaded and, and attacked and worked its way into the church. God, help us. Help us. Help us to be more like him. To not just love and, and have faith towards you, but to, to love and care for others as well. We need you, Jesus. Always do. Amen.